Money talks. (laughs) Are we still recording right now? (laughs) Okay, so I think the sign of actually having a podcast that is, I guess, legitimate now is that we need to have a different intro song. We've gotten tired of the intro. Yeah, we've heard that other people have gotten tired of the intro, which, by the way, as Neil Diamond The eyebrows, the double chin. completely, well... They're, those still exist. <laughs> those haven't changed. Our, our, our intro song is going to change. Yeah, but those are fully there. Uh, but well, we've I think, had fun, right? Uh, this is great. Been super. Yeah, fun. I don't think we really realized. Actually, I think we knew we were going to have interesting conversations. Yeah. But I also think we didn't appreciate that there was going to be people who enjoyed listening listening to our guests. I think we've been fortunate to have great guests, like really across the board, like yeah. super interesting Very conversations lucky. and. And it is turned out to be exactly what you and I do when we're together. Right. And what make you fun and I, of each other, right. shoot the shit. Right. So we've out. The song's been going on too long. Now, yeah. Trevor wants Tedeschi trucks. Is that your band of choice? <laughs> did Every not, time I see I like, a big night out with Meg at Tedeschi trucks, I'm like, <laughs> wow. You and all the guys from the skilled nursing facility. I like, mean, honestly, the crazy thing about it is I'm usually one of the youngest people there. Right. My point being, exactly. <laughs> What's our song gonna be? I don't have particularly current taste in music. We should go something like the exact opposite. We should go like Chain Drake? Smokers. Drake? Drake. Or chain Chance, Smokers. Chance the Rapper. Or... Right. Just the opposite end of yeah. Tedeschi Trucks and Neil Diamond. Yeah. We got to find a song. We should have thought about this when we took August off. I didn't think about it for one minute. Yeah. I, um, I, actually, I know when it came to scheduling guests. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. Don't worry. Uh. <laughs> All right. I'm going to go listen to Drake right now. <laughs> Healthy Dose is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by Steve Kraus, healthcare general partner at Bessemer Venture Partners, and Trevor Price, CEO of Oxian Partners. The guys talk to leaders from various aspects of healthcare and cover personal stories, entrepreneurship, investing, and have a few laughs, many at each other's expense. just wrapped up with the Dosecki's woman of healthcare, correct? Totally. Like I the mean, coolest, most interesting person that we've interviewed. I'll put the spoiler people. unless we edit it out. Like I kind of finished the podcast, almost teared up a little bit. I was like, how do I raise my daughters to be like you? Yeah. H.E. Breitenstein, like now partner at Optum Ventures. Successful entrepreneur. Chief product officer at Optum Analytics. Founder. At Humedica. Yeah, lawyer who then worked in yeah, public JD, health. For masters in public health. Helping HIV. PhD. Affected individuals. Pretty good career. <laughs> sailor. What the fuck do you she and I do? She's a professional she just, sailor. She just sailed across the Atlantic. Right. Like, what went wrong for you and I? The other thing that I've, it's hard to explain to podcast listeners is like, AG cool. rolls into right. industry events. Right. She's got tattoos. She wears a t-shirt. All of her peers at Optum have these blue suits on and white shirts and... You know, they, they look like they just came out of Joseph A. Bank or whatever. Right. <laughs> like, and yet, literally, when you talk to her, you're like, holy cow, you said, like, 25 of the most insightful things I've heard in a long yeah. time. Like, yeah. her depth of understanding of how the healthcare IT system works, both at the macro level, like, the policy level, like, where's yeah. it going? But then at the minutia of, literally, how do you think about sharing data between health system X and, yeah. you know, app developer Y? Yeah. Like, the woman has incredible breadth and depth. 
It's actually really What are amazing. we doing? Yeah, what are we doing? I don't know. We're podcast hosts. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not even sure particularly good ones. She said we we're great at the end, which is probably why <laughs> she she's had our favorite to. guest. Yeah. yeah, she had to. Yeah, she did. Uh, anyway, that was fun. I hope all young professionals and all entrepreneurs listen, listen to AG because I think you can learn something about being a professional and frankly, you can learn something about being a human, a, human, yeah. a person, like a really healthy like authentic, authentic person. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I think we're going to go drink now. Jumping out the window. Right. <laughs> Not worthy. It's good to be back at it. Like you and I haven't done I know. this for a while. I feel like I'm a little rusty. <laughs> um, all right. How long has it been? We take a month off. From but each in, other. Yeah. But in. <laughs> I dated other people. For you did, yeah, I know. You I dated other podcasters. Yes. <laughs> they clearly couldn't have had a good I got voice some time with David Shaywitz. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. All right. We're really excited that we have A.G. Breitenstein here on a beautiful day in Boston. You know, I think A.G. is known for a lot of things, actually, but currently she is founding partner of Optum Ventures. Partner. Partner. You know, just partner. We're just You're partner. cool with whatever title. Yeah. But we're really excited to have you here, a real healthcare IT expert. So maybe. Gonna, maybe. <laughs> On a good day. Hopefully this is a good day. Yeah. Well, look, what AG brings is a continuum of a lot of things. Startup entrepreneur, worked in a big company, yep. now an investor, product, technology, business minds. I think we should spend the time That's kind of all. traversing those, right? I actually think when you look at a bunch of venture capitalists, I'm going to start with your current role. Mm. You don't see a lot of people who have deep product tech expertise. And whenever I have conversations with you in lots of different forms, I, I kind of think that that is, that's your gestalt. So I'm just curious, as someone who has that background and someone who's been in the industry for how many years? Uh, wow, since 93? 93, for a long time. I can't even do that I can't math. do that, Matthew. 25 years. <laughs> um, what do you make of the state of the healthcare IT industry today? Yeah, it's funny. I was thinking about this just today. I see that people are still really good at finding the problems in healthcare because, geez, how could you not be tripping all over them? In healthcare, we have yet still, which shocks me, to adapt the real iterative product approach to solving problems and the data-driven approach of really understanding what matters to people. We still go in with this like dogma of like, I know the solution, I'm gonna build this great thing. And it's like, right, but build something and see how people react when they start to play with it and understand that the technology is its own thing. Can I ask a question? Because we just had a board meeting and you know, you sit around these board tables at healthcare IT companies versus, you know, Bessemer also does technology investing. And just the iteration cycles are so slow, right? And also we don't have consumer involvement. So is that possible in healthcare IT? Like, how do you actually do that? I, I mean, I think it's becoming more and more possible. I mean, as we start to think about the consumer really as the center and you having much more consumer facing, even delivery of therapy through digital means, you are now specifically developing an intervention around That's true, the like patient. a paratherapeutic. Exactly. And so if you're not iterating around the patient, I don't know what you're iterating on other than your own sort of hypotheses without any But that's idea. like a 1% of the ecosystem. How did you do it at Humedica? Uh, well, what was your approach? Because so, that was much more of an enterprise like Totally. Thing. So So we went and we gave our users crappy stuff, right? I don't think we did it right, but um, we got closer as we got on. But And then we just watched to see, we tracked every report they generated, every different question they had, and we needed to understand you're pitching to the C-suite to sell, but your users are uh, in the basement usually, right? And if you're not looking at both 
types. What are these guys asking for and what are the people in the basement actually doing and monitoring that with really good sort of daily analytics to break down every bit? You're not getting the feedback you need to understand how your users are actually, what they're doing with your product. So I'll give you one of your portfolio companies and one that's not one of your portfolio companies. Who do you think's doing it right? So we talk a lot about Bowie, but Bowie, interestingly, because they are- For those listening, Bowie. Yeah, so Bowie is basically Dr. Google, but with true AI behind it. So taking all the published literature, creating an AI out of it, and then just letting people search symptoms and then running them through a conversation to elicit what's really going on with the patient. Every aspect of every piece of what they do, they are running A-B tests. They're running sometimes six, 10 A-B tests a day on how users inflect in different ways based on different ways that the product is being proposed and and the way it's packaged and when the screens, every little bit, every little detail um, of how they're interacting with the patient is being so closely monitored and metered to understand the uptake and the change. I do think this question, the buoy point is really interesting because like, you know, the first generation of digital health companies were all consumer focused, right? And we used to say those are, you know, DTC is DOA in healthcare, right? But now you start to see these companies, and maybe people have learned, is that you, you do the product design around the consumer, but you have an eyesight towards the enterprise, right? I've seen like the second generation of entrepreneurs yeah. in the space have started to do that versus designing for the enterprise from the beginning, yeah. right? I would and just think like to do that level of split A-B testing, you need substantial volume on right. these products. In a lot of situations, it's hard to get that in in a care coordination or one of these kind of clinical domains. That right? I agree with. I think yeah, the other that's thing, true. yeah, that I agree with. The tech companies have done a good job of doing like developer, you know, focused software where they just sell to the yep. developers and then it rises up to CIO. I do think the question is, can that happen in healthcare? Yeah. To your point, because you got to get by compliance and security. But it sounds like Humedica. No, so, I mean, I don't know if we solved it entirely, but we definitely gave it away, let them play with it, right? Created sandboxes, watched very closely what they were doing, metered it. We also had, you know, people sitting next to them asking them, how do you want this to look? What do you want this to do? What question? And what was interesting is the questions were always the most valuable things to understand, right? Not how did they answer it, not what did they, but what are they really, from a business perspective, what are they asking? What are they Mm -hmm. really trying to do? Yeah, it sounds like for future entrepreneurs, you guys just really invested in understanding the product usage and the data coming off that usage. Absolutely, and we're super empirical about it and non-dogmatic. I mean, that's the other thing is I think as entrepreneurs, we believe that it's our value to have the answer, right? To be the, the guru inside. And watching the sort of young entrepreneurs coming in, their whole mindset is all about experimentation. It's all the empirics of, we don't know, but let's create the environment we can ask and test, ask and test, get the information and empirically understand what's going on as opposed to thinking that we are the source of the information. They're far more experimental about how they're approaching product. And it's exciting because now they have environments where they can actually iterate that fast. We couldn't. 10 years ago, we didn't have any of those tools. I want to come back to a question that Trevor asked that you didn't answer. What's your favorite non-opt-in ventures technology or product in healthcare? Oh, God, that's such a... I mean, I'm really interested in sort of the stuff going on right now around payment. If you think about what... Uda's doing, or you think about, and you know, one of our companies, Vim, 
that whole family of companies, if you were to sort of go at the root of one of the big problems in healthcare, it's the structure of the payment system, right? So these companies that are starting to rip out the guts of the payment and the claim structure. And is that the antagonist relationship between payer and provider? Well, so go back in history, right? Our payment systems way back in the day were really created as frictionful mechanisms to moderate the flow of dollars so that you could make money as an insurance company. That's changed, right? Because now we have the data to actually answer those questions. But that sort of inherent infrastructure is still completely embedded across the entirety of the healthcare infrastructure. So the companies that are starting to like pull that out and then tie that to risk, that gets really exciting. Uda's, in my opinion, that is a classic venture capital bet. Mm-hmm. If you think you can decouple those embedded processes from the payer and the provider, that is a monster business if you're able to do it. Totally. And it is a classic venture capital bet, meaning the probability of being successful is probably pretty small, right? So my question is less about UDA and more about, do you think today healthcare in its current state is a system ready for disruption at that level? Because most of the companies we see in healthcare, disruption is not like what Uber did to disrupt the taxi industry. I mean, it's like marginal disruption. It feels major in healthcare. But are we ready for like fundamentally disruptive platforms like uh, UDA? I think it's interesting. The dissonance between healthcare and every other industry is actually growing. Yeah. Right? And and that's creating this like elastic, pent-up kinetic energy of consumer experience. That energy is really interesting to me because the more of it that grows the more you see the potential for a company somewhere to really have an explosive effect on healthcare. And whether it's you know the root and branch infrastructure payment stuff and UDA, or it's a buoy that's you know just gonna take hold of the way in which we steer patients through the whole system, right? Because the dollars follow the bodies. That's one of the basic rules in healthcare. Wherever the people go, the dollars follow. So how you start to move those people through the system is, is gonna have a huge effect. But you're right. It's a classic VC bet, which is the possibility of it is maybe 20%, but that 20% possibility, that one in five, could have such a potentially... Let me push you one step further with just that healthcare's not historically been a venture capital game, right? Because the returns aren't that great. They haven't historically been that great. You don't have the one in 10 opportunity, right? You don't make 10 investments of which nine don't do very well and you get WhatsApp or Snapchat. Cash has been flowing into healthcare venture capital over the last couple of years. It's been more of a private equity game than a venture capital game. And so maybe the question to either one of you is like, is the industry ready for venture capital bets? Can venture capitalists make money on betting on the UDAs of the world? I mean, it's interesting because when did VC start to take hold across technology generally? It was when you started to get a proliferation of all kinds of interesting data and digital behaviors, right? That, that when you look at Silicon Valley and you look at you know every other big industry that where there has been big bets, it's because you've moved people and data and processes into digital environments. That's what enabled- Yeah, microprocessor, right. software, yeah, yeah. Totally, yeah. right? So we're just now seeing that 20 years later in healthcare, where I you're starting you. to see people, you're starting to see data, and you're starting to see real technology-enabled infrastructure, which is displacing the humans. I always tell my partners, because again, we're a diverse firm, healthcare is a, 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 just a piece of our firm, is you know whatever you saw happen in modern industry 20 years ago, or even 30 years ago, that's kind of what's happening in healthcare today. So for instance, CRM systems, customer relationship management systems, and we know this, still like 50% of hospitals don't have them, 
right? Yeah. I mean, if you went back 20 years ago and said you can invest in a CRM system, you know, on Silicon Valley, they would have done that. Now, so now, but the point I think you're making though is what is the right stage of company to invest in healthcare? I actually disagree with you. Healthcare returns aren't good. I think actually, you know, if you looked at healthcare, compare it to tech broadly, it's like a two, two and a half x gross, you know, multiple business. It's just there aren't the 77x profile deals. Right. In healthcare you have to be team. much better. You, you can't have as many losses. Deals. Yeah, right. I think healthcare venture capital at the right stage can make good money. Um, yeah. It's well, just, now let's bring this back to Optum. How big is Optum, just for listeners who don't know? Can sort oh, of, people always ask me this. I'm like literally the worst person. Everybody else. You're not the best Optum person. No, no, it's no, north I, of $100 billion, Yeah, right? exactly, yeah. exactly. I'm, that people are always quoting all these like billions of revenue statistics, and I'm always like, ah, uh, <laughs> so I'm terrible. But, you know. How do you explain Optum at a cocktail party or whatever? It is the largest technology, both health service delivery platform and technology enablement and data and analytics enablement platform in healthcare in the world, period. It's got the largest data assets by far. And the cool thing about it is that it, from my perspective, it doesn't have any of the legacy overhead of being a pure payer or a pure provider. Mm-hmm. When you think about the genetics of how things evolve, you know, our story tomorrow is determined by our story yesterday. We're not a pure payer. Mm-hmm. We are not a pure provider. Yeah, that's a good point. Right? Yeah. We are actually, if you think about us, a pure technology shop that has gone into these other businesses of delivering care, delivering analytics, consultancy, PBM, et cetera, and all based on data. That creates a very different mindset and willingness. It's kind of nice to be Switzerland in healthcare. It's nice to be polyglot. We are a total mishmash of stuff mm-hmm. that if you think about what we want healthcare to be built on today, we want it to be built on data, we want it to be built on taking risk and being able to recreate new structures around how to manage that risk. So you said when you look for businesses, you want them to address like a top three to five need. And I know Optum's a, a polyglot and there's mm-hmm. more than a hundred business unit leaders, but what do you think today, as you sit here today, what are the top three needs? Yeah, so that's such an interesting question. You know, I think making risk work, really making, make, risk work. making risk work. And that's that's an awfully big topic. Let's go there. Well, you, you guys have, you own primary care practices. Yep. You own Surgery urgent care center. clinics. Yep. You own ambulatory surgical centers. Mm-hmm. You, I'm sure, have network optimization and steerage analytics and mechanisms, All right, within Optum yep. Insight. And yet most of those businesses aren't actually integrated. And you've owned them for a while. They've, they kind of are kept operating separately. To make risk work, don't you have to bring all those pieces together? You do. Or shouldn't you bring all those pieces together? You know, it's interesting because I think to do that would be a three-year process, right? And by the time you started that initiative, by the time we got where you were aimed at three years ago, the market would have moved. Interesting. So what does make risk work in your mind? Yeah, so I think it's at least two things, very likely more. It's at least a new delivery platform and a new delivery model, right? And I always get crap for saying this, but we have a physician-centric delivery platform, period, over and out. That's what we've all, you know, the EMR, the way hospitals are organized, the way practices, all that stuff. It's always been about the doc, right? It's never been about the patient. It's never been about an outcome. It's been about a doctor and a service. And we all know this This is ancient history. But the fact of the matter is, and we all know this, and we're talking about it as social determinants of health, it's really about the fact that most people's health is determined by and affected by things that doctors don't control, can't touch, and don't even have an understanding of. So we're starting to finally understand that risk means managing all these things that doctors actually have no effect on. So then you got to start to ask, if we're going to manage risk, how do we manage a patient as a person, as somebody whose health is determined by all these other things? 
The second piece is the payment piece and how we actually financially manage risk. I was talking to somebody the other day. We manage risk the way the Medici managed risk in the 15th century. It's the same calculus. Collect more, pay less than what you collect, and cross your fingers at the end of the year. Every other financial industry has created an entire market analytic on how to actually predict, manage, de-risk, create derivatives, all this stuff. Much, and even you think about patient finances for themselves, nobody's advising patients on how to spend their healthcare dollar. And there's an entire industry that manages the $3,500 that people have in their 401k. People have $10,000 in their HSA and have no idea what to spend it on. So you start to think about that and you're like, Wow, we yeah, are yeah, absolutely in the stone age when it comes to the payment system as a whole. And if you've got patients with $2,000, $3,000 of self-managed spend, nobody's thinking about that. Steve's original question is like, what do we think are the priorities for an optum or something to that effect? Like, how much do we read into Andrew Witte replacing or taking over for Larry as the CEO? Andrew, CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. Optum owns, I think, the largest PBM in the industry, maybe, or one of the couple of handfuls. I think drug spending is 20 to 22% of total healthcare spending. Is Optum going to try to bring, we think of Optum primarily as a payer provider platform. How much of Andrew coming in as a CEO is intended to reach into all of the life sciences dollars and or take drug spend into some form of value risk-based platform as well? Or is it just he's a great leader and was on the board? And So I yeah. think, you know, all of those things. But I think, you know, there's two ways of thinking about it. There's thinking of drug spend as being the largest and the fastest growing component of the healthcare dollar. Point one, how do you manage that? How do you optimize that? Point two, though, and, and I think people forget this, drugs, for better or for worse, are the only part of healthcare that is actually empirically proven to deliver quantified benefit in the healthcare system, right? When you think about the fact that radiation for therapy for cancer, by the way, no RCT ever right. performed on it, right? right? Mm -hmm. So there is 80% of the healthcare system actually doesn't have the science behind it. So I think there is both an appreciation of data, there's an appreciation of the empiricism and the rigor at some level with which the drug industry has approached therapeutics, which if you brought that perspective to the broader dynamic of what you deliver, how you deliver it, how you structure it, that's a real gain. And again, I think starting to think not about this sort of physician-centric perspective on healthcare, because there's either a finance perspective on the administration of healthcare or a physician. This is a third leg of the stool, which is the empirical perspective on the whole system. Yeah. And, and that, I think, is really refreshing. Yeah, I agree. I think the so. like, companies like Ateon and Evidation are doing are really yeah. interesting. You know, they're trying to actually do what you said, yeah. apply the same discipline to, you know, the rest of healthcare. I'm going to use this yeah. as a segue into to talking about you, because I think you're the you're the most interesting woman in healthcare, like the Dos Equis person, <laughs> but in healthcare. But like, I want to actually go way back. This is stuff where I love this stuff. Like, where did you come from? Because for those people who have not seen AG at the health conference or the JP Morgan conference, she represents a firm with a bunch of guys who look like you and me. Who were like suited up <laughs> yeah. in suits and ties. And AG comes in, she's got sailing tattoos and she wears the clothes that she wants. And you're your cool own looking. character. You're your own person. You have a sense of confidence about it. You don't care, I think, what the people at Optum or United, you know, that's not an Optum dress code. You just sailed across the Atlantic Ocean. <laughs> 
right? Like, what is it about you that, because very few people, I think, are have a, the emotional kind of fortitude and self-sense. So what is it about you that, that sets you up to do that? It's interesting. Well, so. This is our couch time. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 We psychoanalyze you. I, I get paid It was to do funny, this. actually. Uh, <laughs> well, I remember there's only one professional moment that I was actually afraid. Interesting. What was that? It's when I first started to practice law and I had a client and it was a kid that was three years old with HIV who was going to get thrown out of her house. And it was the only moment that I was really truly afraid because in that moment I was like, okay, somebody's life is actually in my hands. There was a successful outcome, but I figured out in that moment, I was like, anytime it's about money or, you know, stuff and not about somebody's life in this very specific moment, if you're not taking chances, why bother? Because at the end of the day, if it's just money or if it's just whatever, you will always have chances. You'll have a lot of chances and you should always take them. But the only thing that really, you know, is a bad day is if it's somebody's life or somebody ends in jail. Everything else, just keep taking shots. So I want to push because that's clearly an entrepreneur's attitude. And my sense, I was going to ask the question, what did 18-year-old AG think she was going to end up doing? But, you know, the other thing you did in your life is you were a lawyer. Yeah. And a lawyer is like the antithesis of an entrepreneur. So like also what? a PhD, did, right? Uh, Masters almost. in public health. Yeah, yeah, but more the lawyer. Like what did 18-year-old AG think she was going to do and like walk uh, us through the story cuz going from a lawyer honestly to yeah. an entrepreneur is a like about polar opposite as I can imagine. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. There's yeah. not many so who've done walk that. Walk us through that. Yeah, like, no. Well, 18-year-old AG thought she was going to be a professional sailor and go sail around the world. Which you um, still do. Yeah, which I'd gotten to do, but not get, get paid, paid for to it. do. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but it's a crap life. But anyway, um, uh, no, I mean, so when I started practicing law, it was all about trying to help, like, fix the system, right? And, you know, go do battle for that purpose. But you realize you're not building anything. You're literally taking things apart every time you pick up the phone or go anywhere do anything. And so I had this weird instinct. I was like, I want to build things. I don't know. I had no idea what that meant at all. And then this serial entrepreneur got, got a hold of me and was just like, we're going to build a company. I was like, oh, this sounds fun and exciting. And again, you know, nobody's going to jail. Nobody's going to die. It's all upside. You'd never done product. You weren't technologically. Oh, no, no. Don't ask me to do I mean, math. You, you have a history me? degree. Yeah. You have a law degree. You have a master's in public health degree. Yeah. 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 No, there's no product or technology in there. No, not at all. Where do the guts come from? Like you just I think you just listen. It's just about listening to people. That's it. If you can learn to shut your face and listen, people will tell you everything you need to know. And they'll tell you everything they need. And that is all it is. And then being able to translate. And so the law degree actually in that sense is very valuable. Because hmm. that is what you spend all your time doing is translating. And ultimately I think listening. For the first time in this podcast, Steve and I are sitting here with our mouths shut. <laughs> Well, no, it's a really good point about lawyers. Like, you know, I, yeah. you know, I work a lot with lawyers, and, yeah. but that's right. That's right. They take a lot of my jibber-jabber and they make it sound sensical. Yeah. yeah. No, you can organize words into concepts. That is a valuable skill. And you can communicate. So build product, but then sell product, right? So at Humedica, I was the chief evangelist as much as I was the chief product officer. Mm -hmm. And getting people to see a vision of a world that doesn't exist. That's what an entrepreneur, more than anything else. That's but how did you get into healthcare first off? I was in healthcare from the minute I was a lawyer. Because I wanted, of the HIV crisis, HIV crisis. Was, was what brought me into health law. So you were doing public health law. 
essentially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I was working Representing with clients with HIV. Homeless kids on the streets of Boston at high risk for HIV. Got yeah. it. Yeah. And then how did you get your first for-profit healthcare gig? What was that? That was a children's hospital research. I had worked on, this is actually partially cool and partially embarrassing. So I had worked on the original draft of language for a health privacy bill, which was supposed to be protecting the data that went outside the healthcare system. It got flipped on its head and got turned into HIPAA. <laughs> um, but that, a lot of that HIPAA language is language that, that I helped draft. So every entrepreneur will love you from this podcast and yeah. they'll also hate you at the hate same time. Hate my guts. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. No, it was with a good intention, which was there was no protection for health data once it left the medical system. Trevor said, like, no product experience, no tech experience. How'd you get your first chief product role or even product role? Michael Weintraub. Literally. He was like, help me figure out what to do for providers to work with them with their data. And I said, I've been listening. I know what to do there. So that was that was really fun. It was really because there was big data didn't exist. Right. Machine learning didn't exist. Analytics right. was. There was a lot of, of small data at that point. There yeah. was a lot of small. There was a lot yeah. of claims. They had a lot of small yeah. data, but nobody had really dove into the the EMR systems to see what was in there. So, yeah. And again, it was just, can we listen enough to figure out what to do? Do you ever aspire to be the Michael Weintraub or the Larry Renfro? The face and the voice and the driver. I mean, you've partnered with one exceptional entrepreneur and one exceptional larger company, both CEOs. You've clearly been critical to Michael's success at Humedica, and I think we all believe you'll be critical to Optum Ventures' success. Do you ever see yourself or want to be the point person, the person with the spotlight on them? To me, it's about, you know, complementarity. And this is the other thing that I figured out is one of the secrets of professional success is self-awareness. If there's one thing that, that you can work on your whole life and that will make you successful, it's self-awareness. And self-awareness is, is understanding your strengths and even more completely understanding your weaknesses and understanding the people that you work best with to fill out that picture. And if you can find somebody who you trust and you like to work with and you can learn from, that's a recipe that's like picking your partner in life. So, yeah, and finding, you know, there's only a handful of them in our lives. So yeah. I've, I've been very blessed in that regard. I'm, I'm wondering about the evolution for you from being an operator and an entrepreneur to being a financier and an advisor yeah. to operators and entrepreneurs. Yeah. Do you find yourself having to step back and say like, it's their deal, I'm gonna give them the advice that I have. And like, how have you found that? Do you feel- Were you ever like, yeah. like grab for the steering wheel? Yeah, and, no, I mean, as somebody said to me- Or is the me, one degree of separation from actually making the calls, is that, has that been an easy navigation for you? It's actually been great. As somebody said to me, you know, starting a company is parenthood and becoming a VC is grandparenthood. Um, <laughs> so, and I kind of love that because it really, like in a that. way, you really, really you get to, and you get so much. I mean, I am sure every VC suffers this. We're idea addicts. We love to hear ideas. We love to hear about people's dreams, essentially. And Are you, you know, an optimist or are you a pessimist oh, by nature? Every entrepreneur, I think, is a delusional optimist necessarily delusionally optimistic. And the thing is, can you dissociate your left brain from your right brain, allow that delusionally optimistic sort of sensibility to drive getting up in the morning, and then maintain that sort of dystopic voice in the back of your head, which is constantly going to help steer you around the shoals so that you don't delude yourself into a bad outcome. But yeah, yeah, very optimistic. But you know, it's like being the 
prize patrol, as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if you feel like this, but oh yeah, it's yeah, a great job. You listen to people's yeah. dreams all day yeah. long, and but you, you know, say no. The hardest part is saying no. Say no to nine out of every time. I don't know. Saying no is absolutely brutal. But, um, with incomplete information, like massively incomplete information. Massively incomplete information and somebody whose whole life is right. wrapped around this idea. Yeah. No, there's no question. That's the worst that's the worst part of the job. Yeah. Yeah, no question. I think we can't skirt around gender, obviously, in this podcast, um, given the environment we live in. It's it's a tough question always for Trevor and I to ask. And you know, we've interviewed some really successful women on this podcast. And I was struck by when we talked to Annie Lamont, yeah, who's right. probably one of the most successful venture capitalists, regardless of gender. But we asked her about this, and she has real self-confidence and said she doesn't really even think about it, you know, the gender issue. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious, you two are clearly a confident woman who has been successful. Like, how do you, one, how have you navigated that and thought about that? And then also, how do you advise other women entrepreneurs, investors around what is, you know, unfortunately an unfair issue? Yeah. Right? I mean, to me, it's, you know, there's a lot of ways of looking at it, and there's political ways of looking at it, there's personal ways of looking at it, and professional. At the end of the day, everything to me comes back to authenticity. It's all about, are you the author of your own life story, or not, period. Because the fact of the matter is, is if you take authorship of your own story, everybody around you, that's what everybody at the end of the day wants. Right? We all want the freedom to author our own book. And I know that sounds fluffy and kind of nonspecific, but for some reason, somewhere along the line, it became clear to me that that's all you need to do. And when you're comfortable with yourself, everybody around you gets comfortable. And so even people who might be inclined to want to you know, dominate or do whatever, they, just, they don't have to. What I also talk about is sort of incorrigibility. Be incorrigibly yourself. If you're incorrigibly yourself, nobody will try to, because they know that they can't stop you, they can't fix you, they can't change you. Just be incorrigibly yourself. Love it. Yeah. I'm sitting here saying I wish all young professionals and entrepreneurs would get some AG time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right? Because, like, your perspective and the way you carry yourself and the way you go about doing what you do is, it would change a lot of people's perceptions of their career. So in a positive way. So it's, it's great to get that. I hope a lot of young entrepreneurs listen to this. So. No, I think, as I told you guys before, my associates were like, you're going on Healthy Dose? That's the <laughs> cool one. So we got to end with that. Right? Totally. Thank you so <laughs> much. Thanks, AJ. Right. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to A Healthy Dose. Please subscribe through iTunes. And if you have any suggestions for topics or guests, Email the guys at steve at bvp.com or trevor at oxyandpartners.com. Yeah.